0: Welcome to the OT Digest Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Casparo, the founder of otgraphically.com, where I synthesize research into visually appealing graphics. On this podcast, we take research and make it more fun and interesting in order to quickly hear the most updated evidence all around the world. I interview authors, share research tips, and provide practical examples that I hope you can use and incorporate into your interventions the very next day. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the OT Digest podcast. My name is Katie Caspero. Today, we have Dr. Aaron Dahlman here. He is a Assistant Professor of Occupational Therapy at Rutgers University, and he graduated with his PhD in Occupational Science at UNC Chapel Hill. So we're so excited to have him to talk about neurodiverse affirming practices and his new article that came out in OJOT. Uh, so I'm so excited about this topic. Um, Aaron, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit more?
1: Sure. Hello to the listeners. Um So my name is Aaron. I have been an occupational therapist now for, it's been around seven years. And before that I was a music therapist and all in my clinical career, I've been really passionate about working with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. I have loved being in that field even as a high schooler, like many people who enter into OT, I was someone who volunteered at Special Olympics and things like that. And it's just something I've grown to be increasingly passionate about and excited about. So I'm very, very excited that we're going to have some more conversation about neurodiversity affirming occupational therapy today.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, So one thing I love to ask is, what's a favorite occupation that you like to do for fun?
1: I would say my favorite leisure occupation these days is rock climbing, particularly indoor rock climbing. I will admit I get a little scared of outdoors and hooks and things falling off, but uh, indoor rock climbing is definitely one of my favorite leisure activities. It's, it's lovely. It's grounding and also uh, a little bit of adrenaline pumping, and uh, it's a nice challenge throughout the day.
0: I love that. I, indoor rock climbing is just as hard. I've seen people hanging from the ceiling doing that. So it's no joke sometimes.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what I love to do. I love to be inverted. Uh, it just It's a, a fun challenge. We don't get that in our days, right? We don't get those opportunities to really activate that vestibular system and proprioceptive system through climbing and, and using muscles in really different ways. And I think it's a nice challenge.
0: Oh, neat. I never thought of it like that. Uh, So can you tell us a little bit about your most recent article, and was it your dissertation? It was not. Okay. I didn't think so. Okay. So can you talk about the article, uh, Neurodiversity Affirming Practices are a Moral Imperative for Occupational Therapy, which is a very strong title. It caught my attention right away.
1: That's, That's the goal. Make a nice, strong title, and hopefully the article follows with decent content, but a strong title. It's really the key. This it was an interesting article uh, for me and my my co-authors because it really started off. The first round of the article was actually published in OT practice and it, it got started because we were. I was talking with Katie, who is an occupational therapist, a PEDS OT, I have a tremendous amount of respect for. And she's really trying to work towards embedding these kinds of neurodiversity affirming practices in her own occupational therapy practice. And it's something that I've been striving for as well. And as Katie and I were talking, we were sort of coaching each other through what do these practices look like? How do we as occupational therapists do this kind of work? And what became exceptionally clear for us, is that there's not a lot of guidance out there about what this looks like or how to do this. We know that people have been critiquing oftentimes very behavioral practices or practices that seem to not be aligned with this neurodiversity-affirming perspective, but it really wasn't clear what this was and, and how practitioners could start to incorporate these principles. And moreover, I think it was especially difficult for occupational therapists, who some of our history, in fact, was came out of this behaviorist tradition. So to really take a step back and to reflect on our own practices was an important step for both of us. And it was something that really motivated us as we were thinking about the article and thinking about what did we need to say. And the first thing we felt very confident we wanted to say is right there in the title that we shouldn't just brush this off. There is so much occupational therapy research that gets published every single year, so many wonderful articles, but we don't read them all. And of course, it's really easy to not immediately start with these these practices in your occupational therapy work. We felt like this is a really important idea and we need to jump on this as soon as possible. And by we, I mean occupational therapists because there's tremendous things at stake. And the second thing, our second aim in getting this work out there was really to make it, to try and make it as approachable as possible. It it can easily get very, very high level and very philosophical, but that's not what we want this to be. We want this to be something that people can start to think about and start to evaluate for their own practices today.
0: I definitely got that when I read that article, it was very, it was probably one of the most um, I don't know if it's an easy read, but like I felt very engaged the whole time. It wasn't over my head. It felt very practical. I was like, yes, this is what I'm experiencing. this is what people, you know, uh, the autistic population is telling us we need to listen. Um, and these are the like really concrete examples, which we'll definitely would love to ask a little bit more about that later. But I'm just thinking with the way I've pictured this whole process of um really just a, a awareness about, neurodiversity is that we just needed to be aware first because a lot of people weren't and some people still aren't you might also be in this podcast and not sure what we're talking about so I might come back we might back up a little bit and say you know a one or two line about, you know, the history of neurodiversity and and what does that look like compared to what we're used to. Um, but I do think we're kind of now in this stage, like, okay, we have a good chunk of awareness. Now, how do we actually implement these practices or what does it even look like to do that? We know now know it's an issue, but how do we make that next step? So I think it's like a, a good problem, right? Like we're moving in the right direction, but there's still a lot of work to do From my, from my perspective. I don't know if you agree with that.
1: I agree completely.
0: So for those who have not heard or maybe are just still learning about neurodiversity, what are some just key things um, you would say about, you know, why is this an issue? Why do we need to focus on neurodiverse affirming practices in occupational therapy practice?
1: Sure. So taking that step back, what, what do we mean when we're just talking about neurodiversity At its core level, we're talking about people whose brains process information differently from those that we might constitute as neurotypical. We know that there really is no normal. We all think and process information differently, but there's a large portion of the society who processes information in a very similar way. But then there are those that process information and experience the world quite differently. And that's the autistic population certainly fits into that neurodiversity group, right? These are people who, as part of core features of autism, have a strong preference for consistency, have a different reactions to sensory stimuli, some being over some being under some depending on the context of the situation, may respond differently to a particular stimulus or um, sensory information. They're, They're at its core, we're just talking about people whose brains function a little differently. And this matters because if their brains are processing information differently, that means they're literally going to be experiencing the world differently. And that's I mean, it's kind of a remarkable concept when you take a moment and step back and think about it, because it's sort of saying when I sit here and sit at a park to me, maybe it's a relaxing experience, but to others, the birds and the sound of the birds may be so piercing that it's a bothersome experience. And that's valid. I want to understand that. I'm not going to sit here and tell them, oh, you should be fine with those birds. Like, it's fine. Relax. That's that's so inappropriate because their experience is valid. It's their reality. It's their world. And me reframing it for them isn't going to do that. In fact, what I want to do is I want to understand their world. And in fact, maybe it would help me think about the world that I experience. Maybe I had been missing those bird calls. But the autistic person telling me how piercing it is to them helps me cue into it in a different way. And suddenly my own world is transformed. That's that's what we're talking about here. And, and these ideas are not my own. They're not, um, frankly, not super new. Um, they initially started in the early 90s. A person named Judy Singer pop first coined the term, and it has been the movement has been growing ever since, but it was in Judy's master's thesis, when this idea was coined, that autism is in itself a kind of culture. It's a a group of people who are, in fact, experiencing the world differently than other people. And what we don't want to do is to try and stifle that culture, that experience, that way of being in favor of saying that you should all act like you're neurotypical.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And there's one thing I want to I want to address because it, it's you use the term and I've used the term and we both said the word autistic as opposed to person with autism. And there're probably some listeners here who grew up I know when I was in school I was taught Uh, person-first language, person with autism, a person with cerebral palsy. But I want everyone to know why I'm using the word autistic and using this disability-first language. And that's because I've talked to autistic people, autistic self-advocates who have said, I love being autistic. If you were to take that away from me, I wouldn't be who I am now. And so it's a core feature of who I am. It's It's a core feature and so because of that, I want to be autistic. I'm not a person with autism. I don't want the autism to feel like a problem or an accessory that's an issue with me. It's a core part of who I am, and I'm excited about that. And because of that, and because of many self-advocates I've talked to and I've seen in the literature, that's why I've used uh, the disability-first language, autistic, in, in this conversation as well as in the paper.
0: Yes, thank you for saying that. That's not something that I've uh, said originally. I appreciate you. Uh, going through that too. Um, One thing that I saw in your article that I have not seen anywhere else was the combination of our ethical mandates for occupational therapy with neurodiversity affirming practices and how that connects, which I think is really an important piece that I hadn't really seen spelled out. So could you maybe give a few examples um, I can pull out some in the article, too. But, you know, what are some of those practices that, as an ethical mandate, we are supposed to, as OTs, participate in? And, and it's an imperative.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important point. That at as you look at the OT practice for the United States, as well as every other um, practice legislation for uh, folks outside of the United States, almost every practice that I've seen, occupational therapy guidelines, includes in it principles of beneficence, malfeasance. We have to do good. We have to be helping our clients and supporting their health and well-being. And more important, not more importantly, but equally as important, we also need to not be doing harm. We can't be harming our clients, causing them to have decreased well-being and health as a result of our treatment. And that's, that's an A moral issue, it's an ethical issue, and it's a legal issue. It's something that is mandated to us as registered and licensed occupational therapists within the United States. And so it's something we have to continue to reflect on. If we think of ourselves as uh, an emergent field, which all of healthcare is, we're all practitioners and we're all figuring this out as we go. It's our job to then evaluate what are those best practices and what practices might we have been doing that have been harmful. Not too long ago, many, a—I'm not, not many occupational therapists but psychologists and some still today used electric shock as a way to decrease behaviors. And it worked. Sure enough, if you shock people, it, it in fact works. Um, but many have decided that is not the right treatment approach. And in fact, that might be unethical. So this kind of continued reflective practices, I think essential for occupational therapists. And as we were looking into the literature, What we found is that many autistics have talked about the harm that has come from behaviorist practices. They've talked about having symptoms of PTSD and trauma and depression and anxiety because behaviorist practices have told them that their way of being is not okay. And that to me is doing harm. That is, we are not helping clients. We are actively hurting them if we start to utilize those practices, and that's exceptionally problematic for us. And that's really where the moral imperative comes in. When we start to talk to autistics and we're hearing that our treatments are not helping them to participate in meaningful occupations, but in fact are hurting them, that's the moment we have to step back and we have to reflect and we have to change. And that's where I think these neurodiversity affirming practices are going to be a way forward for us as occupational therapists. And I think it's the the momentum we need to continue to develop best treatments for for autistic individuals.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And as a kind of example, I noticed you had talked about a therapeutic goal that would reduce neurodiverse behaviors that could be a harmful thing. Um, I thought that was a really good, a good wake up call. Uh, for many of us, that our goals can actually be harmful depending on how we're framing them. And I think, uh, uh, to be honest, I think that's where it starts with our goal setting. In addition to what you've clearly done a lot of and something that I need to do better of, but really listening and seeking out and talking directly to the autistic population and using their words, not our own. You know, even the fact that it's just us I'm like reflecting, maybe we should have had somebody who was from the autistic population join us, you know, that next step could have been uh, neurodiversity affirming practice. So could you talk a little bit about how a therapeutic goal for reducing neurodiverse behavior is an example of that and how that could be, um, you know, not supporting someone's well being.
1: Yes. Well, as a side note, I am a self-diagnosed autistic. I had one psychologist who suggested I was on the autism spectrum, and we talked through the diagnostic process, and I decided I did not need the diagnosis for the $3,000 or something ridiculous it was going to cost. So- you know, I have some perspective, but I also acknowledge the limitations of that self diagnosis. So, uh, with that aside, when we think about our goals and evaluating whether or not they're actually helping our clients or hurting them, one goal that I've seen is, and I think it's becoming less and less in practice now, I hope, but telling autistic kids that they shouldn't be stemming, they shouldn't be flapping their hands, they shouldn't be, um, I don't know, twiddling their thumbs or using fidget spinners or things like that. I've seen things, goals related to quiet hands, where instead of fidgeting or things like that, they should sit with quiet hands, uh, sometimes reinforced as like hands under butt or something. Um, And really what that is, as I've seen it in most cases, it's a goal for the teacher because the teacher gets distracted by the kids flapping hands. And that's not really appropriate, I don't think, in most contexts. And so if I tell a kid that he is not able to flap his hands, And that's how he expresses his happiness. Imagine if I were to tell you that when you're happy, you aren't to smile. There's a great show on, I believe it's Netflix. I can't remember the name of it now, but it's a bit delightful. And in the show, it has comedians in it. And the goal of, they bring all these comedians together. And what they have to do is to try and make each other laugh without smiling or laughing. And it's so incredibly unnatural and it's painful to watch and hilarious to watch because these comedians who laugh quite a bit typically by their trade are told they can't do something that is so natural to them and the show of course is quite short i don't know the whole series is maybe 12 hours in total where these comedians are told not to laugh now imagine that is your life you're told for Eight hours every day in school, you're not allowed to smile or be happy or to if you're feeling anxious, oh, you shouldn't express that anxiety in whatever way that looks. That that truly can be harmful. And what you find is when you talk to autistic people and they have these kinds of goals, not only does it worsen their anxiety when they can't sort of express themselves the way they might want to, but also it means that they're distracted because instead of paying attention to this is the cla- This is what I should be paying attention to in school or my friends or whatever. I'm now paying attention to I shouldn't be flapping my hands or I shouldn't be rocking back and forth or bouncing or whatever the repetitive behavior is that the team has decided is not appropriate in that context. Now, I have also talked to autistic people who have had a desire to stop some of their repetitive behaviors. They've acknowledged that it gets in the way of meetings and things, or it in itself can become distracting to them, or they want an additional self-regulation tool. That to me is a very different thing. That's a, that's a whole different construct because we're giving that agency back to the autistic person, but we're still enabling them to express themselves however they would like to. And I think that's really the core feature here is giving the autistic individual, the agency to decide how they want to express themselves and acknowledging that that expression might not look like a neurotypical individual's expressions.
0: Can you give some other examples of non-affirming trends in OT?
1: So one, I think that is exceptionally common and I think is difficult to do well is reward based systems charts, uh, sticker charts, tokens to earn uh, an item or something like that. I think that there are ways to do that that are neurodiversity affirming. And I think there are ways and many ways that I see that do not affirm neurodiversity. And the core feature that I go back to as I evaluate like a sticker chart or any kind of token economy is where's the motivation for the child? Are we developing intrinsic motivation? Or are we developing extrinsic motivation? Does the child understand the meaningfulness behind this behavior or why we want them to do or engage in a particular occupation or do some kind of something? We want them to be a part of that decision-making as opposed to engaging in a behavior strictly because they want the candy or the token or the stickers or whatever that happens to be. If the child doesn't isn't motivated by the occupation or the activity itself, then that behavior is going to be extinguished as soon as that reward is withdrawn. As soon as they are home and there's no longer the sticker system or the sticker system fails and you're out of stickers, or they go off and transition outside of high school or college, whatever that looks like, when that reward is removed, the the behavior suddenly is gone. And that's not really the kinds of behaviors we want. I mean, this is a, maybe a really simplistic example, but I... I mean, I'm not someone who particularly enjoys brushing my teeth. I think it's very uncomfortable. I'm, I'm very unhappy with it. But because I understand about the importance of dental hygiene, that's why I engage in that kind of behavior. Helping our clients understand the importance of whatever the occupation is, whatever the skill is that we're going for, that's really a much more important skill. That's really much more relevant. So I think that sticker charts, any kind of token economies can can often be non neurodiversity diversity affirming, particularly in the case where the therapist where the educator is the sole member setting the goal, setting the desired output and where there's not an emphasis on the meaning behind that output, where that is missing, that, that can truly miss out.
0: That makes me think of a moho model and occupation and and the motivation being the first part of that. Um, Just as you were, as you were talking. Um, Yeah. And, you know, Thinking about what motivates us, and yeah, maybe externally motivations happen, you know, and and they'll support it a goal. But I could see that you know, as soon as that leaves, that's just not translatable or generalizable to different contexts. So that makes total total sense. And um, I think thinking longer term is helpful in those situations. Awesome. Yes. Thank you for all that information about. Just how we can maybe be rethinking, especially those tokens and and rewards. I think that's a really important piece that can be really easy to fall back into when you're trying to meet those short term goals, and uh, when insurance companies are are stressing you out. So it's really an important thing to to reflect on. So. In this article, you listeners can't see this, but definitely go to check it out because I'll put it in the show notes, but there's a chart that starts with, you know, examples of maybe goal areas or targets like functional play or stimming, and then it moves on to common behavioral approaches that maybe have been used, and then it switches into neurodiversity affirming approaches. So I feel like if we go through um, one of those, this is honestly, as a clinician, this in of itself is so helpful, kind of the what's next, how do we apply this, how do we actually do this practice? So could we uh, go through maybe one of the examples, Um, it says social skills and communication. So what would be an example of a behavioral approach that is commonly used and how can we switch that?
1: So that's a great example. I love talking about social skills because we see them a lot in the autism population. We often see goals related to it. Um, but even sort of broadly amongst individuals with disabilities. So, this is a great topic. So, behavioral approaches are things like responding only to appropriate kinds of communication. That would be a behaviorist approach, might say, I'm only going to respond to you if you're looking at me. Or, I want you to use my name when you're calling my attention. Asking people to use, to speak in a certain way, to avoid repetitive language, to use certain kinds of um, Phonological patterns, like, oh, your voice should go up when you're asking a question. Those kinds of things make assumptions about how one should communicate. That's, that's the behaviorist approach. Neurodiversity affirming approach, we take those assumptions and we throw them outside and we, we really start at the core. And I like to encourage people as they're thinking about this to reflect on what do you, what is your preferred style of communication? I, for example, am somebody who does not like eye contact. I loathe when I have to sit here and stare at someone's eyes because I'm constantly sitting here going, how does my face look? That's why I love Zoom, because I can look like I'm looking at someone and I'm actually not. Great, great feature of Zoom. But, but take a moment and reflect on that. How do you know when someone's engaged with you? Do you look for eye contact? Do you look for head nods? Do you look for um, just general certain kinds of body posture things? That's Those are the ways that you prefer to interact. And it's important to acknowledge those because that sort of self-awareness will help you understand kinds of the cues that you're looking for. And then the next step is to reevaluate them and to say, what are the other ways somebody might be communicating and socializing with me? So, of course, eye contact is one way you can indicate that you're paying attention. But also looking to the ground is another way that you can indicate attention. And in fact, responding to a question that's been given to you is the best way of communicating that you're actually paying attention. How many of us have had someone nod their head along, staring at us with a blank stare, not listening to a word we've said because they've got something else in their mind, lunch, dinner, I understand it. So allow yourself to reflect on your own communication style. Evaluate the different ways that other people might be communicating and to recognize that some of those are going to be uncomfortable for you. It may be uncomfortable for you when somebody uses repetitive movements or stereotypical speech patterns to communicate that they're feeling happy or excited. That might not feel real to you, even though it is that person's way of expressing themselves. So a neurodiversity affirming approach, I, I want to know that this person has a way of communicating that they understand how they're communicating that they have a way to express their happiness their joy their excitement and most importantly that their parents family friends caregivers whoever's in this kiddos or adults life space will understand this communication style as well so i really want to work with family members teachers parents fellow kids friends classmates to understand hey when Johnny is flapping his arms. This is what this is what he might be feeling. This is why he might be doing that. And that's kind of like when you smile. That's how that's how you communicate this particular feeling or emotion or uh, experience. Helping everyone in the interaction, understand what's going on. So those social skills do exactly what social skills are supposed to do. Help you connect with the social environment around you. Once you've accomplished that, whatever it looks like, probably looks different from the way that neurotypicals communicate but when you've accomplished that that wonderful beautiful social interaction that's the goal that's what we're looking for
0: so would you say as a goal it's more about educating the family than like a, like an actual goal or is there something that can be written for the child as well
1: certainly Parent education goals, um, parents voicing, uh, understanding about how a child communicates four or five emotions is a great, a great starting place. I think there are goals for the child themselves. Giving a child, helping a child explore different ways of communicating those emotions, I think is very, very appropriate. I also acknowledge that social experiences are dyadic or triadic or transactional that social experiences aren't just, it's not just that we in a neurotypical world need to just suddenly do everything different to understand autistic people. That's true, that's absolutely true. But autistic people also have work on their hands as well. They also need to understand neurotypical communication styles. So I don't necessarily wanna tell them that they can't flap their hands, but I also want them to understand that sometimes people might misread that. And so maybe if they're verbal, or if they use communication devices or we, we, we're we going to explore different ways for them to express that to other people. And maybe we are going to work on a smile, but they're going to know why they're smiling. They're going to know why it's important, why it isn't. And they're also going to know that they're going to find it tiring. And so you might use that smile in a job interview, but then you might not if you're just hanging out with friends. Those are the the different nuance, really. I mean, it's, it's all nuance. There's not going to be a clear answer here about you know, this is bad, this is good. But let's center the autistic person and their experiences in in the process.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. Yeah. So for those of us that are clinicians listening, besides what you've already shared, Aaron, what else would you want them to know? Or what's kind of the key, key points that you want to make sure they take away?
1: The biggest idea that I want the listeners to walk away with is sometimes when you hear this kind of approach, it can feel very accusatory. It can feel like, wait, I'm doing something wrong. This this guy is saying that this person saying that I've been doing uh, terrible OT. And that is not at all the mission here. Uh, we acknowledge in the OJAD article that we as practitioners have made our own mistakes. I have done occupational therapy that I reflect on and think, wow, that was not what I should have been doing, that I should have taken that and maybe handled it a little bit differently. And those kinds of mistakes are part of being a clinician. It's part of being a practitioner. Instead, what I what I hope therapists and, and anyone listening might take away from this is it's just a call to be reflective and it's a call to action. I. I I'm less interested in the mistakes you've made in the past, but more interested in how we're gonna move forward as a field and what do we do as a field and as practitioners and individual therapists to make sure that every step we do is good therapy and is good clinical work. And I think if you take that idea forward and think about the autistic perspective and these neurodiversity affirming ideas, you are gonna be an amazing OT and you're going to be a fantastic, fantastic ally with autistic people. And I think that is just so wonderfully exciting. And that's my emotion. It's it's just excitement to see more and more OTs start to embed these practices. And to that tune, you're going to find yourself, even as you read the article and you think about it and you feel like you have a good sense, you'll make a mistake or two. I've done it. I've had it, had a reaction. I think, oh, where I've, I did a session and then I thought, wait a minute, that was a little too behaviorist. What? How was I embedding intrinsic motivation in the session? And those kinds of mistakes and experiences are going to happen. This is not a perfect process. It's just a reflective process. And once you're doing that, it's uh, there's a lot of potential here.
0: And what I hear you saying and what I think was most helpful is the key is to reflect and take that space to step back.
1: I think yes. so. I think it so. Can,
0: yeah. It can feel like, you know, well, at least for me, <laughs> this isn't everybody else's experience, but kind of want to throw everything away and just stop doing therapy, you know, but that's not the yes. answer either. So no. No. Um, how do you lean into that? And um, I think that is such a process of, of developing and clear clinical reasoning and your clinical practice. And, you know, you don't, you only know what you know. And then when you know better, you do better. I think Maya Angelou said that. So.
1: Absolutely right, and it's a little by little. We don't have to throw everything away. You can keep your sessions that you have planned for tomorrow exactly the same. Just maybe think about changing one thing to support intrinsic motivation, or maybe you're going to rethink how you're addressing this goal. Maybe just incorporating a little bit more consultation with the teacher to talk about some of why these behaviors might be what they are. Those kinds of any step forward, is progress. That's momentum. That's what we need. And one other, one other thing I think that's worth mentioning, now at the start and at the end here, is that what we we talk about in the article, and we are we are firm believers in this, is that we've created some principles here that we think are neurodiversity affirming practice. We think these are tenets that that qualities of what neurodiversity affirming occupational therapy is. But this list is, and what we've talked about it's going to change. And we've probably made mistakes. And there might be wonderful autistic people who listen to the podcast and are like, that's not right. And that's exactly the kind of dialogue we want. We want that kind of critique. Let's come up with a better list. Let's, let's define these practices more and more clearly. And, uh, and then, hey, maybe in a few weeks we'll uh, or in a couple of years, we'll throw out our, our article because there'll be something better. That's the kind of dialogue that really is at the core of these kinds of practices. And that's the kind of dialogue I think it's gonna really make us as occupational therapists even better.
0: Well, I feel like that's a great place to end it. Thank you so much, Aaron. I really appreciate just all the work that has gone into this as well as your co-authors. Uh, this is really just came at a great time from when many people have a lot of questions about this and is very um, practical and and helpful for us implementing things and helps give us a little bit of guidance. So thank you for that. We really, as an OT community, appreciate that.
1: Of course. And to any of the listeners, um, to you, Katie, if you have questions that arise, I want you to feel that I am accessible. Everyone can can reach me. My email is a.dalman at Rutgers.edu. We can include it in the notes here. Um, please reach out if you have questions. And And thanks for the opportunity to chat.
0: Thanks so much and thanks everybody for listening.